Good afternoon, brethren. And thank you very much for that special music, Leona. That was beautiful. Answering the phone is not always the best thing to do. I was enjoying my Sabbath morning this morning, relaxing. God says it's a day of rest. The phone rings. It's my cell phone. And so I think, well, it's going to be somebody business-wise. I ignored it. My wife decided not to. She answered it. And so I'm standing up here before you today. My father called and said, "Um, not up to speaking today. I'm coughing, and I don't want to be up there coughing, so I think I want you to give the sermon today. So I'm glad he didn't call me 10 minutes ahead of time. But uh, anyway, um, up here because of him. Let's put it that way. So, But I'm glad to be, and uh, it's good to be here today with all of you. Today... It's just another day, isn't it? It's December 10th. There are special days in time that we look at, and we can look and say, well, uh, December 7th, Pearl Harbor Day, and uh, we have Thanksgiving Day, and we have the feast days and that sort of thing. But there was another day this year that had some significance, at least to some people, because an event was announced that that would happen on that day. It was May 21st of this year, May 21st. Some of you may know what I'm talking about, but there is a individual named Harold Camping, 89-year-old gentleman, that made a proclamation back last January, and he said on May 21st of this year that we are going to have the rapture. All of those who are saved are going to be raptured up to heaven You're going to be taken away from this evil world. That was his prediction. Didn't happen, did it? Because he's still here and everybody else is still here. A lot of people got excited about this prospect. And in in reality, a lot of the world thinks that this is a wonderful thing. They, They don't know really what's happening in life. But this is something that maybe could give them some hope, that maybe that this could just be the end and they could go and they could somehow be with God or go to heaven. And so they got excited about this. They got behind it. He raised over $20 million to get the word out about the day of the rapture on May 21st. Well, the day came and went. And then after the weekend, of course, he had to stand before the media and say, well, um, I was wrong, but he didn't really say that because he said, well, I just got my timing off a little bit. He said, I didn't understand. He said, actually, today was just a spiritual judgment day. It wasn't the rapture. The rapture isn't going to happen until six months from now on October 21st. That's when the rapture is going to happen, and that's when the whole world is going to be burned up. And anybody that's not taken in the rapture is going to die, and that's going to be it for them. Well... May or October 21st, six months later, was the day after the last great day of the feast. And we're all here. The world is still here. Harold Camping's still here. It hasn't happened, has it? But a lot of people get excited about these thoughts. And they say, well, you know, what about this? What should I do about it? How should I, how should I react? What should I do? He had made a prediction. He said it was beyond a shadow of a doubt, but it didn't happen. When he first made the prediction on Fox News, the Internet site, they put up a poll and they asked the question to their 
people on their website. They said, if you believed tomorrow would bring the end of the world, how would you spend your remaining time? How would you spend your remaining time? If you knew tomorrow would be the end of the world, what would you do? And they put a number of different possible answers on their website. The first one that that got the highest response was to spend a quiet night with family or friends. And it got about 42% of the respondents that checked that box. The next highest one was to pray. Interestingly, to pray about it was less important than spending night with your family and friends. And only about 36% or 38% got checked that box. They had yet another one on there that said, I'm going to go out and eat an outrageously expensive dinner and then just walk out on it and not pay the bill. How great would that be? Well, that just shows what this world is about, isn't it? You just go out and have a wonderful dinner at the most expensive dinner place in town and say, I'm not paying the check because the world's ending tomorrow. What are you going to do about it? Well, it just shows it's about self, and that's what a lot of the world is about. It's about self, isn't it? They're looking out for themselves and what's good for me and what can I enjoy and get out of life. Well, the bottom line is, as all of these answers are interesting, what does that have to do with us here today? What does that have to do with us? If we think about this concept of, well, is Jesus Christ going to return tomorrow? As a lot of the ministers, Protestants and others out there are preaching that, Jesus Christ could return tonight, or he could be a thousand years from tonight. We know that that's not true. And in reality, a lot of the people in the world even know that's not true, because in the, in the other box that people could check on that poll, a lot of the people actually put on there what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, that no man knows the day or the hour that Jesus is going to come to this earth. No one knows that hour, and they understood and even knew the scripture to quote it. But we understand that this is not how God works. This is not his plan. This is not how he does things. But as ridiculous as all of this nonsense is, and all the nonsensical answers that people gave to this question, it really is a very valid question that we as Christians should consider. Why is that? What is it? As wrong as Harold Camping was about his prediction, and he does have prediction addiction as we call it, he was actually correct about what he said in from one aspect. He was actually correct about that. What was he correct about? Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. And we'll see what he was correct about. 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll pick it up in verse 16. He writes in verse 16, If anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed. And as Christians, we know that we are going to suffer. Thinking about what Jesus said in Matthew 24, what is the future that we have to look forward to? In some ways, suffering, because there is a lot of things that are going to happen in this world. And we're going to have to be in and go through some of them. But he says, when we do suffer, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of that. But let him glorify God in this manner. And yes, we are to give God the glory in everything, in all things, that we glorify God. For the time has come, now pay attention to this, has come, present tense, not future tense, not past tense, 
has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Yes, judgment is on the house of God, on us first. We are being judged now. It's present tense. It was present tense back when he said it and wrote these words. And it's present tense today for all Christians. Let me read a quote from the July, August 2007 Living Church News in an article by my father that backs this up. He wrote, we are living today in a world just as corrupted as Noah's was. People deny God, break his laws and defy his authority in countless ways. God tested Noah's patience just as he is testing ours today. How tragic that during this testing period, some of God's people are losing courage and deserting the ship. They're giving up. They're saying it's too hard. I can't keep it up. I can't keep doing this. It's too hard. He goes on to write, you had better realize that now is the time God is testing your faith, patience, and courage. As a member of God's church, you are being judged now. Just exactly the same words that Peter wrote. Judgment is now begins with us. It has come. It is on us as members of God's church. If we have been given God's Holy Spirit, we have been called and chosen. God is looking at us and judging everything we think and say and do. He knows the thoughts of our heart. There is nothing we can hide from him. And judgment is on us now. Harold Camping thought it was on those people, but it's on us. And it isn't a matter of us being raptured out today to something, to heaven. It's a matter of understanding that God is judging us, keeping that in our minds and in our thoughts and in our hearts continually and not forgetting it. Our judgment day is today, right here, right now. And the question that I have for you today and the title of my sermon is, Are you ready for judgment day? Are you ready for judgment day? Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll begin in verse 7. Here... Paul is, in essence, speaking about a, a spiritual essence, not of a, uh, throughout this chapter, spiritually speaking, not physically speaking. But he says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And so as we get up each and every day of our lives and we go out into this world, if we're just going out and doing what we see and, and reacting according to what we see in front of us with our physical eyes, We're not going to be doing those things that we should be doing because we are blind spiritually. We've got to walk by faith, knowing that God is in charge of our lives, that our lives belong to him. And everything that we do had better be a result of our reliance upon him, that he is leading us, that Jesus Christ is living his life in us. He goes on to say, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Absent from the body. Can you have an out of body experience? Is he talking about you go into some mental, you know, state of hypnotism or whatever? That's not what he's talking about at all. 
Because I think what he's really more referring to is what he wrote. If you hold your place here and turn back to Philippians 1, as he considered his own personal physical afflictions and whatnot, and he looked at his life, in Philippians chapter 1, he says in verse 22, but I, but if I live on in the flesh, that this will mean fruit for my labor. If he continued to live as opposed to dying, he says, I will in essence be producing fruit. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell for I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. He says, it'd be far easier for him to just go ahead and die knowing that the next waking moment of his life, he would be with Jesus Christ. Then to have to continue to go on and struggle and go through all the things that he went through. He said in one way that would be far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. You see, he's saying, he said, I think it's more needful for you because I can help you if I'm alive. If I'm dead, who can I help? Who can I teach? How can God use me to help and call others? That's what he was worried about. He was worried about the brethren, not about himself and his own needs. So he says in verse, going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 here, We are confident, yes, well, pleased, rather to be absent from the body, to be present with the flesh. Therefore, as a result of this, we make it our aim. This is their goal, their, his aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. He says, we better make it our goal to be well-pleasing to God. We better make sure that everything that we think and say and do is well-pleasing to God because he is judging us on it. God is judging us. We want him to be pleased with us, don't we? We better think about, as we live our lives and ask ourselves, as we do different things, Am I pleasing God? Is God pleased with me? He goes on to write, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And yes, every single person will have to be before that judgment seat of Jesus Christ. He, we will. We are there now. Because we have been given an opportunity to be a part of God's family as part of the first fruits. This is our chance. This is our one and only chance. We don't get three strikes and you're out. We get one chance. You better not mess it up. You better not mess it up. You better make sure that we're doing the things that we should do. And so he goes on in this theme and says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord... And this word terror here is really should be better and more understood in terms of it being translated as the fear of the Lord, because that's the same word that's used throughout the New Testament that is translated as fear. We shouldn't be in terror of our God as he's some great monster that's going to, you know, blow us up or, or evaporate us or whatever. We don't have that kind of terror, but we should have the proper fear of God. Have that fear and awe of him. As a young child, they look up to their parents. They love their parents. They know that their parents love them and want what's best for them. But yet they know that if they don't do things that their parents tell them to do, that they're in trouble, that they're in trouble. They're going to get in big trouble if they do some things. I used to be a little kid. 
I had the fear of the Lord and I had the fear of dad. When he went to take that belt off, oh, there was great fear, fear and trembling. I didn't want to have to face that. The rod of reproof was not fun. But yet I love my parents in spite of that. And that's the kind of love that we have to have for God. And if we do have that love for him and we properly have that fear of him, knowing that he wants and knows what's best for us, if we will just obey him, everything will go just fine. God will bless us. He'll give us all that we need. He'll give us more than we need. As we heard in the sermonette today, God blessed him because he obeyed God. He realized he was doing things wrong. He turned his life around. He repented. That's what it's all about. Repentance. And so we need to have the fear of the Lord. But going on here, it says, Knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. And yes, we are well known to God. God knows every single thing there is to know about us. There is nothing we can hide from him. His word tells us that the hairs of our head are numbered. With some of you, it's easier than others. Thankfully, I still have most of mine. Although some of it's starting to turn gray, my dad mentioned. I said, well, that's just because you made me move here to Charlotte. But, you know, it's, it's something to do with the weather maybe. But God has every knowledge of what's going on inside of us. He knows about us. We are well known to him because he has chosen us. He has individually looked down and chosen and said, I want you. I'm giving you an opportunity to be a part of my family. If you will just obey me, you will have everything your heart desires and beyond anything you can imagine. That's what God wants us to have. Yes, it is. But he also mentions there in that verse, he talks that we persuade men. How do we persuade men? How should you persuade men? Turn back to Acts. Acts chapter 7. I'm sorry, chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1 here, we see that Paul is on one of his travels. And it says, When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. And there there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ, had, that Christ, that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, "This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ." You see, he went into the synagogues of the Jews in order to try to teach them and help them to understand what God's word was. He had to explain to them who Jesus Christ was. And it says he did it from the scriptures because they didn't have the New Testament for him to talk about. They didn't have those, these books written. He was teaching them from the Old Testament and going through, I'm sure, the prophecies talking about the one that would come. That would be the son of God and then explaining that as he died, what that meant and what it meant to them and to all of mankind to have that sacrifice so that our sins can be forgiven. That's what he did. 
And we see in verse 4, it says, And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Yes, they were persuaded by Paul. And as Paul wrote, as we read there in 2 Corinthians, he talked about that we are to be persuading men. And as we live our lives each and every day, and think about God is judging me on everything I do. Are you living a life that is a persuasive life that can help others to teach others? It's something that a lot of us don't necessarily think about perhaps as much as we should. That as you go out there into the world and you go to work, you go to school, you go to the store, whatever it is that you do, you're going to be interacting with other people. They're going to see you. They're going to see how you act. They're going to see how you talk. They're going to see how you treat others. And you're going to be setting them an example. And as you interact with them more, they're going to realize that there's something different about you. And they may perhaps ask you, Why, what is this all about? What is this thing? You won't go on Saturday. Why? Some people I know have been embarrassed about it because they're like, oh, well, I don't want to have to get into that whole thing. But yet that's their opportunity. That's your opportunity. That's my opportunity to persuade others, to teach them and tell them the truth, to help them understand what we believe and why. Not hide it. We are to be lights in this world. We're not to put our light under the bushel where no one can see it. Try to try to just kind of get around. Well, it's just, you know, I'm just really busy on Saturday. I just can't do it. Make sure you're a light to this world, that you do everything that you can to persuade others to understand and know the truth, to know the true God. Help them to have that understanding and that knowledge that you've been blessed with. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. Again, I'm sorry, again, but 1 Peter 2, we were in 4 earlier. In 1 Peter 2, Peter writes something in this line. 1 Peter 2, 5, he writes, You are living stones, are being built up a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. That's who we are. That's what God is building up, a spiritual house. We are all a holy priesthood. It isn't just the ministry, but God is going to have us all be kings and priests in his family. That's what we are called to do and to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then dropping down to verse 9, he says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. We are God's special people. What are we supposed to do about it? Drop down to verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. He says, look out for those fleshly lusts. They war against the soul. It's difficult. There's all kinds of things around us that want to pull us and drag us aside. We shouldn't allow that to get to us. But then in verse 12, he writes, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. That's what I'm talking about here. Having our conduct be honorable with whoever we're around. That when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. You see, even in this life, if they don't understand it, if they don't get it, if you have set a good example, if you have been a light to them, 
when this day of visitation comes upon them, they're going to remember that. It's going to have stuck with them. This word that's used here is visitation. In Thayer's Greek lexicon talks about this word. And it says, in biblical Greek, after the Hebrew, pequata, that act by which God looks into and searches out the ways, deeds, character of men in order to adjudge them their lot accordingly, whether joyous or sad. You see, what he's talking about here is when these, when the world that we're now a part of and living within, but not called, has their chance. When they are being judged and they come before God in the great white throne judgment or for those who live through into the millennial period, they're going to remember these things. They're going to remember that example and it's going to help them. It's going to be beneficial to them both now as perhaps one of you may through your example, through your talking to fellow co-workers and friends and family members that maybe not a part of the church, through your example now, you can help them to understand the truth and perhaps you can be the vehicle by which God calls them and brings them within his church. That's something that we have to think about and make sure that we are doing our part in. That is something that God is judging us on. He judges us on a lot of things, and I can't begin to cover everything today in the sermon. But this is one thing that in this context of what I'm speaking is important and that I want us all to think about because it's a part of our daily lives and we have to make sure that we are doing it. We're living in the last days, not literally, but at the end of the age. Jesus Christ is going to return in a few years, whether it's five years 50 years, probably not 50, hopefully not. I'm sure it probably will be more like 10, 15, or 20 years. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to you, and it shouldn't matter to me either. It shouldn't, because as far as we're concerned, we better be living every single day of our life as if it were our last day. Because on a physical level, we don't know how long God is going to give us to live. Life is short. Some people are given longer to live, others not as long. I had a friend of mine out in California in our church there, a wonderful man, a good man, a good father. He was a deacon there, served the people well, very humble. He wasn't feeling well one morning, and he got up, Decided not to go into the office first thing, slept in a little bit, and then went out for his jog that he liked to do each day to get his exercise in. He came back from his jog, tired, told his wife he was going to get a shower, and then he had to get into the office for an appointment. She said, okay. She says, I need to drop our daughter off at college, but I'll have the car back in time for you to go to work. He went in to take a shower. He never came out of the shower. She came home and found him there dead. He'd had a heart attack. A young man, comparatively speaking, he would have been 58 years old a couple of weeks ago. Life is short. Life is short. The time that we've been given here on this earth is precious. We can't put off until tomorrow what God wants us to be doing today. We cannot, we must not. If we want to be there and stand before the throne of God 
and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. We'd better make sure that each and every day we are ready because we are being judged. We are. It's an important thing. We don't know the day and the hour of Christ's return, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Turn back to Matthew chapter 24. As we know, in the first part of the chapter, Jesus explains what's going to happen before the end of the age, and before he returns. And then, as I said earlier, as I quoted earlier in verse... Um, oh, turned the wrong page. In verse 36, he said, No one knows the day and or the hour. No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. No man knows. Jesus at that time was a man. I'm sure he knows now because God and Christ are one. There's no secrets between them. He knows, but at that point in time, no one knows the day or the hour. So what do we do about it? We don't know the day or the hour. Drop down to verse 42. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. If we knew that we were not going to live beyond tomorrow or next week, maybe we would suddenly make some major changes in our life. But we, we aren't going to know that. We don't know that. We've got to be ready constantly. If you knew a burglar was going to rob your house, you'd make sure every window and every door was locked, the alarm system was turned on, and the big old dogs had not been fed for a couple of days. You'd do everything you can to protect your property. Why would we do it any less spiritually than we would do it physically? Why? He goes on to say, therefore, you also be ready for the son of manning is coming an hour that you do not expect. I don't expect to walk into the shower and take a shower tonight or tomorrow and not walk out. But I don't know. My life is in God's hands. All of our lives are only he knows. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Who is this person? Blessed is the servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. You see, if you are preparing, if you are giving the household food in due season, if you are working, producing fruit, you will be blessed. It's a promise. But you've got to be doing it. You can't just be sitting around letting the world go by, thinking, I've got plenty of time. What's the hurry? I'll just sit here and watch TV a little while longer. I'll surf the Internet a little while longer. How do you spend your time? What's important to you? God is watching. He knows. Assuredly, he says in verse 47, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all goods, all his goods. God says he's going to make us ruler over all the universe. Not just some little thing. God is going to have us be rulers in his family. That's the promise. But we've got to be so doing. We've got to be doing the work that he has given us to do individually. 
We have to be doing the work as far as doing our part in making sure we're setting an example, helping family, helping friends as the opportunity arises to teach them the truth, not cramming it down their throat because that's going to do nothing but turn them off, but doing it in love. If they're interested, tell them, explain to them why you do what you do. Explain to them why you keep these weird holy days, why you're gone for a week in the fall, why you don't keep Christmas. Let them know. Let them understand. It's amazing how many people out there really do want to know. I was just in New York yesterday, and I was talking with some people, looking at a, uh, doing a site location preview for a possible fee site. And the individual that I was talking to wanted to know what our church is about. Well, why do you do these things? And so I told him. I explained to him. thing, And he was genuinely interested. He, under, he wanted to understand why we do these things. Why do you do that? Why do you keep that? He's genuinely interested. Will he take the time to go on the website and start reading and doing things? I don't know. I don't know. But we've got to make sure that we're not embarrassed about who we are and what we're about, that we are doing all that we can do. We've got to make sure that we are doing our part so that we can be blessed, as Jesus said her. Blessed is a servant who his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Do you want to be blessed? I know I want to be blessed. I have a feeling all of you want to be blessed, too. And the blessings that God has to offer are far greater than anything that any other man can offer. Yes, I want to be blessed. That brings me back to the Fox News poll that I read earlier. The question they asked once again was, if you believe the world would end tomorrow, how would you spend your remaining time? How would you? What would you do with your time? What if you got a knock, knock, knock on the door? Jim Meredith, you've got 24 hours, and then you're going to die. What would you do? It's an interesting question. Have any of you ever really considered it? It's something to ponder, to think about, because it might lead you to realize that maybe there's some things that you should be doing that you haven't been. Not just what have you done that's been right or wrong, but what have you not been doing? I know if my dad got that knock on the door, he'd probably spend the next 24 hours live prime time on WGN or something. He'd be like going, I'm going out with my boots on, preaching the gospel, warning the world. Now, if he did that, it might be the last 24 hours for Mr. Ruddleston, too, when he got the bills. But, uh, you know, time and chance, so to speak. But the reality of it is, It is a question that we need to consider. And so I do want to take the remainder of the time I have left here and look at a few examples in the Bible of people who were in this position as they faced imminent death and how they handled it. What did they do? Let's begin back in 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings 2. Here we have the end of King David's life. He'd been king for many years. And as we read in verse 1, he says, it says, Now the days of David drew near that he should die. So what does he do? He says, And he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. He wasn't 
wailing and bemoaning, oh, I need to live longer. I, you know, I deserve to live longer. He didn't, he didn't worry about it. He didn't fret over it. He called his son in. And it says he charged him. He told him what to do. His son was going to take over the nation of Israel. He was going to be the next king. David cared about the nation. He cared about his son, but he cared about the nation. And he told his son, here is what you have to do as the next king, because I'm going to die. I'm ready to go. I've had a full life. He says, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. He says, you be strong. You be courageous. Don't be afraid. David was a courageous man. We know. You go back through the history of his life and all the things that he did. Going up against Goliath. How much courage that took. And all of the other battles and wars he went through. Saul chasing him all over hill and dale trying to kill him for years. David had a difficult life, but he was courageous. He didn't back down from anything. He was not one to back down. He stood up for the truth. And he told his son, this is what I want you to do. Be strong and prove yourself a man. How do you prove yourself a man? If you tell everybody else to go out and do all the work, and you just sit there and enjoy and reap in all the pleasures as a result of everyone else's hard work, how much respect is that going to get you? How much are people going to really respect you because of that? If you get in there and you are working hard every day and you're right alongside with them, if they're out on the battlefield and the, and the king is fighting right alongside them and he's there in the heat of it, the men are going to respect him. The nation was going to respect him. And the nation did respect and love King David. And David wanted his son also to have that same kind of respect. But he said, you've got to prove yourself. You've got to earn respect. Respect can be demanded, but true respect is earned. It's earned. He said, you earn your respect. And keep charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, and his judgments. So then he gets right into the meat of it. He says, here's what you've got to do. You now have to obey God. What is he doing? He's persuading his son. That persuasion we were talking about. He had taught his son his whole life of God. His son had undoubtedly knew of David's love for God and the truth. And David here at the end of his life, once again, is bringing that to the forefront of his son's mind, saying that, it, that you want, I want you to walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, his testimonies. As it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you turn. You see, then he also says, if you do these things, you will prosper. It's a promise. It's a promise. If you obey God, you will be blessed. The nation will prosper. And that's what it was about. It wasn't just about his son being the richest man in the world, which he became. It was more than that. David knew the nation would be blessed if he do these things, if he did these things. He would prosper, and if the king prospered, that meant the nation prospered. And that's what he wanted his son to do. And so he wanted his son to have the same kind of faith that he did. Have that faith in God, that love for God that he had. Faith, courage. 
not backing down, not giving up. David didn't show any fear. He showed courage, and he wanted his son to have that. He lived that way his whole lifetime, and he wanted his son to follow on in his footsteps. That's how David handled his impending death. But let's look at another one. If you turn over to 2 Kings, in 2 Kings chapter 20, We have another example of yet another king down the line, Hezekiah. Hezekiah had been king for a number of years at this point, and he had done good things in Israel. Israel had prospered under him. But as we see in chapter 20 and verse 1, it says, In those days Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. There's that knock, knock, knock on the door. Hezekiah, you're going to die. Set your house in order. This is God's word. This wasn't Samuel's word. This was God's word. I'm sorry, Isaiah. Then he turned his face toward the wall. And he moaned and wailed and groaned. And why are you doing this? Why, oh, why? That's not what he did. It isn't. He did, however, pray. He says, remember now, O Lord, I pray how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what was good in your sight. And then he, yes, he did weep bitterly. But he went to God first. And he said, God, I'm just going to give you a reminder. I have lived a good life. I have done a lot of good for Israel. God used him to once again open up the temple that had been sealed shut by his father. And they had torn down the high places. And they had begun doing sacrifices and keeping the Passover and the holy days in his reign. And he said, I want some more time. I really would like to live longer. And it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle of the court that the word of the Lord came to him saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord God of David, your father, I have heard your prayers and I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. And I will, and on the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord and I will add to your days 15 years. God heard his prayer and he said, okay. I'm going to give you 15 more years. And Hezekiah lived 15 more years, and he died at the ripe old age of 54. He was only 39 years old when he was told he was going to die. A young man. God gave him only another 15 years, you could say. David was died at 70 years. But he was given 15 more years. You see, Hezekiah understood that the great God is a God who loves us, the God who cares about us, and he does hear us. He understood the words that Paul wrote in Hebrews chapter 4 in verse 15. And he said, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly, courageously to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He understood to go boldly before God's face, to go before him and say, God, deliver me. Give me some more time. That took courage. Sometimes when we go through trials and tests, we don't go before God courageously enough, perhaps. Reminding him of what we have tried to do in our lives. However, imperfectly, none of us has lived perfect lives. I know a story of a lady years ago out in Pasadena who was one of the elder's wives that she had been suffering with severe tumors in her stomach for a long time. She'd been anointed. She'd prayed and prayed and prayed. She'd been anointed a couple of times, and they were growing bigger and bigger. I forget. They were pretty good sizes, I recall. She'd been x-rayed. She knew they were there. She opted not to have surgery, though. She wanted God to heal her. And I remember she told me the story one day. She said, you know, I've prayed about this and prayed about this. But then she, she said, I realized that if I was going to be healed, I was going to have to just really put my whole heart into it. And she says, I went to God and I almost chided him. Why haven't you healed me? I've tried to obey you. I've tried to love you. I've tried to do. I know I haven't done it personally, but you haven't healed me. And God did heal her. He took the tumors away. They just disappeared. We've got to go boldly before that throne of grace. We've got to have courage. We've got to courageously go before God each and every day. Show him that we have the courage that is required to be his sons. We've got to be courageous. We are being judged on our courage. We are being judged on our faith because that's a part of it, too. Just as David had the faith and the courage. We've got to make sure that we are putting our lives in God's hands, but that we are boldly going before his throne and asking him for his intervention in our lives, asking for his help. There's been a lot of people who had to face death, but I think the next individuals we're going to look at here had to face it in a very unique way. If you turn over to Daniel in chapter 3. Familiar story. I know we all know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As they faced imminent, immediate death, they were told to bow down and worship a false god. And they wouldn't do it. And Nebuchadnezzar called them to him and he said, If you don't do this right now, Right here, you're going to die. You will die. He was king. It was a little different back in those days. There were no appeals. There was no appeals of appeals. Oh, well, you know, we weren't arrested and given Mirandize properly. Didn't work like that. The king's word was final. In verse 15, picking up the story, 
The king says to him, now, if you are ready, the time you hear the sound, the horn, the flute, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the burning, fiery furnace. We're not going to wait. The music plays. You worship my God or you die. The choice is yours. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, Hold that thought, King. Uh, give us a few minutes to confer about this. We want to discuss this. Just just give, it, give us a little time out here. It's not what they did, is it? It's not the way they handled it. They immediately answered the king. In modern terminology, you could say they said, you know what? There's really nothing to talk about. You can throw us in the fiery furnace now. We don't have to wait for the music to play. You might as well get it over with. Get on with it. Because we are not going to worship your image of gold. We will not do it. So what if we die? We don't care. We're not going to worship your image. We're going to worship only the true God. And so in verse 16, they said, We have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. You see, they didn't say he will because they knew that it was a, it was God's decision. They said he is able to deliver us and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Either way, in life or death, they said, we're going to be delivered from you either way. It doesn't matter. If we're delivered for you, from you in death, so be it. If you throw us in there and we're delivered in life, then we're going to be delivered from you. We won't have to go through this anymore. And so we know what happened. They were thrown in there. And nothing happened to them. They just walked around. Just kind of enjoyed the sights. Yeah, cool. I always wanted to have a big fire like this and kind of hard to make in my backyard. But they enjoyed it. They had, they had a, little, a little stroll around. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, he sees them in there. And in verse 26, picking up the story there. He says to them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Really? What did he say? Servants of the Most High God? Somehow, Nebuchadnezzar had the light go on because somebody else was letting their light shine. Somebody else was pretty persuasive with what they did. Come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire and they walked out. Not even the smell of smoke was on them. Not a hair of their head was singed. Nothing. They walked out as if they had never even gone in. And Nebuchadnezzar in verse 28 spoke saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Kind of a 180 degree turn for Nebuchadnezzar, wasn't it? Completely changed his tune. Therefore, I make a decree that all any people, nation or language which speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. 
Nebuchadnezzar realized that there is no other God than the true God. He had his own gods and didn't understand the concept of really who the true God was, but he saw something that he knew was only possible by the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They showed courage. They showed faith. And they persuaded the king to know who the true God was. That's how they face death. As we face our fiery trials in life, they're difficult. They're tough. You get called up before your boss to say, if you go keep this Feast of Tabernacles, you're going to lose your job. When you come home, there won't be a job there for you. It's happened to a lot of God's people over the years. And in most cases, people come home from the feast and they don't have a job. In some cases, they do. Sometimes, one example out in California, a brand new couple, the wife working in a hospital, was told, if you miss another day for this church thing because she kept getting scheduled on Saturday and wouldn't go to work, you're fired. That's it. And she's like, okay, fine. But I'm not going to be there on Saturday. And so she went in on the next shift she was scheduled for, and it was as if nothing had ever happened. How did that happen? I'll let you guys figure that one out. I think we know. That's the kind of example that we have to remember as we face trials in life, as we face whatever comes along. We've got to have that courage as we go forward each and every day. God is judging us on that. He's saying, are you courageous? Do you really have faith in me? Are you going to put your life in my hands? Or are you going to take it up to a point and say, okay, I'll go this far, but I'm not going any farther. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't hesitate, and neither should we, to obey our great God. A couple of chapters later, once again, we see the example of Daniel in the lion's den. Very similar story. He refuses to worship and pray to the to the uh, the king the king's God, and so he continues to pray to the true God. Same thing happens. We know the story. I don't need to go through it again. And for lack of time, I, I don't have the story. But the bottom line is, Daniel went in there, and God delivered him. God delivered him. And once again, we see the king makes a decree, just as Nebuchadnezzar had made a decree. No one's to worship any other god. Also, Darius made a similar decree regarding the god that Daniel worshipped because he saw something that he knew could only take place if the true God was there and blessing it. He understood it. It's an important thing as we think about and we face trials, whether it's physical trials, many of God's people around this world and even here in this congregation are suffering from physical ailments, life-threatening physical ailments. God is in control. We've got to make sure that we keep going and we're courageously doing our part, going forward and not allowing ourselves to be upset, to be pulled down, to be pulled away from the true God, from obeying Him and from loving Him, realizing that our life is in His hands. 
We go to him courageously and we ask for his help, for his intervention, for the courage and for the comfort that we need also. Our God is loving and he is great. As we think about examples of one who faced death, of course, our greatest example is that of Jesus Christ. As he lived his life on this earth, giving his all for us. As he looked forward to his death, knowing that he was going to die, he was about to be crucified, knowing exactly what that entailed, having, I'm sure, seen it happen, the scourgings and the crucifixion of people and the agony and the pain that was associated with it. As he faced that sure and certain death, he went to God and he prayed about it too, didn't he? He said, if there's any other way that this can take place, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And that's what we have to do as we face these trials that we go through. We look to God and say, God, I know that I can't do this alone. I need your will to be done and I need the courage and the faith so that it will be. Help me to have these things. Help me to be able to go forward. Help me to have that same courage and that same faith in God that your son Jesus Christ had so that I, I too, can be a part of your family one day. He died courageously. He didn't back down. He didn't complain. He just went forward. He did what he had to do. He knew that what he was doing had to be done so that those of us sitting here today and all of mankind would have the opportunity to be a part of his family. And so he went through that and he gave his life willingly. And we have to lay down our lives and be willing to give our lives up, to give up whatever we have to. Turn over to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And let's look at yet another individual who also, as he faced death, had to have this same kind of courage, faith, and persuasion. In Acts chapter 6, the beginning part of the chapter, we we read the section here about the seven individuals being ordained. And in verse 3, it says that they were to seek out from among them seven men of good reputation and full of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, and wisdom. And then in in verse 5, it says that they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And then it names the other four, or the other six, I mean. And so Stephen was chosen, and he was ordained, and he went forward, and he made great progress. At this point, he was probably just ordained as an elder, I'm sorry, as a deacon. But between verse 6 and verse 7, there's probably a time period there over verse 7 that takes place of months, maybe longer, we don't know, where it says, Then the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And then in verse 8, it says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And so he began to be doing great wonders and signs. 
And as we go to the next chapter, we see that he's called before the council to address them. And he's being questioned about why he is doing what he's doing, why he is saying the words that he's saying. And once again, he doesn't back down. He doesn't just say, hey, I'm sorry, guys, I didn't I didn't mean to rock the boat here. I just I got a little overzealous about things. It's not what he did. It wasn't the type of person he was. He was bold and he stood up before them and he boldly preached to them the truth. He boldly talked to them. He courageously don't have time to go through the whole chapter here. But if we if we drop down to verse 51, we get to the peak of his boldness as he says and calls them, you stiff necked and uncircumcised of heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you have become the betrayers and murderers. He didn't mince any words here. He cut straight to the heart of the matter. He got right to the point. He got right in their face, as we say today. He told them what was what. He called them murderers. Nobody wants to hear that. It's not very kind words. Those are fighting words, as we say. What happened? And when they heard these, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Oh, I'm sure they yelled and screamed and called him every name and said everything there was about him. They didn't like that at all. But then at that moment, for some reason, God gave him a vision. And it says, and he being full of the spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, look. I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out in the city and stoned him. They killed him. And they, verse 59, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What was he doing as he died? Was he yelling at them, calling them names, saying, how dare you? I'll get even. You'll get yours. No. It says he called out to God and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Very similar to the words that Jesus Christ said at the end of his life, isn't it? says, do not charge them with this sin. Lord, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. He showed courage as he faced that. He showed great faith, putting his life in God's hands, but yet not backing down from preaching the truth and from attempting to persuade others what the truth was, who the true God was, who Jesus Christ was, and what he was about. That's the kind of man he was. That's what he did as he faced his final days or his final minutes and hours. That's the kind of person that God wants us to be as we face our trials. That's the kind of things we need to do. We need to be going out there preaching strongly as we can through our example. Helping others to know this is what we believe. 
living that way of life each and every day, knowing that God is watching, that he is judging us in all that we do and all that we say. And it says here in verse 58 that they laid his clothes down at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul was consenting to his death in chapter 8 and verse 1. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And so we see Saul, as we know, was the one that was persecuting the church. Saul was a very zealous, devout person about his beliefs. He went after the church with all of his spirit, with all of his heart. He didn't back down. He just kept going forward. He kept after those Christians, those terrible Christians, because they believed in the Christ. We've got to stamp that out. But then something happened. Turn over to chapter 9 of Acts. Acts chapter 9. And we see here in verse 1 that he's still breathing out threats and murders against the disciples. But then in verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Like, what? Who are you? Where's that voice coming from? Who is this? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He said, I am Jesus. These are my people whom you're persecuting and you are persecuting me. And once again, very similar to what we saw in Nebuchadnezzar, We see here in Saul, as he suddenly makes a 180-degree turn, he doesn't question it. It's like he just knew it. He understood it. He saw it. He was living it, and he believed it. And he said to him, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you expect of me? What do you want me to do? And so we know what God wanted him to do. God used him powerfully for the rest of his life to go out and to preach the gospel, going to the Gentiles. He went through a lot of persecution, a lot of things, many, many trials and tests that that man had to endure, beatings. He talks about in deaths often. He probably was dead or next to dead when he came out of Lystra and was stoned. And yet God raised him up and he didn't after that stoning say, okay, you know, it was all good up until now, but, uh, that's, that's as far as it goes. I I can't keep doing this anymore. Don't want to die. He got right up and he walked right out to the next city and he went right back at it again. He didn't worry about it. This is what I have to do. If it means I die, so be it. I'm giving my life to God. I am serving him. And that's what God expects us to do as well. Well, Paul came to the end of his life. Turn back to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, in closing here. In 2 Timothy 4, in verse 1, he's talking to Harry, he's charging Timothy here of what to do. He goes and says in verse 2, to preach the word. He's telling him, this is what I want you to do. You keep going out there. You keep preaching the word. You don't back down. You be courageous as I've been courageous. 
just as David told his son. You keep going. Verse 5, but you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. And he could certainly relate to that because he certainly had. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. And that's what we should be doing individually, fulfilling our ministry, the service that we've been given to do. We've all been given different talents. We all have an opportunity to set an example, to be lights. But then he says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He says, I have gone forward. I am about to die. My departure is at hand. He doesn't say, woe is me. He's saying, here's what you need to keep doing. Here's what you need to keep going forward. Be courageous. Preach the word. Have faith in God. Have faith in his promises. As we see in verse 8, because he says, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me to, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. He had faith in the promises of God. He had faith that God would give him that crown, that his name was written on that crown. And as we as Philadelphians in this last end days of this, of, of wor- this world, as we look forward to Jesus Christ's return, we know what God said to the church at Philadelphia in Revelation 3, that we are to hold fast and let no one take our crown. We have been given a crown. Our name is written on that crown. But we better not let anybody take it. We better make sure we hold on to it and that our name is not taken off of that because it can be. If we turn against the great God and we turn back to this world and turn our back on him, we will lose that crown. Paul understood what that was all about. He knew that he had done what was right and just. And he had faith in that promise. And he faced death knowing, now it's my time. Now I want you to go on, just as we have to go on with what we've been given to do. Brethren, we've been given a wonderful opportunity. A wonderful opportunity. I don't have to remind you about our future because we understand the greatness of it. The awesomeness of it. We have a future of an entire universe to look forward to, ruling over under Jesus Christ. It's awesome. But we've got to make sure that we do endure to the end. We cannot give up. We cannot back down. We must never, never, never turn our back on God. We must endure afflictions Endure pain and suffering and whatever comes along in our way. Not let us turn us, turn us aside from the love of our God. Not allowing ourselves to turn back to this world. As we think about the men of God who went through the many different afflictions that they went through, what we have faced in our lifetimes is minimal. We are probably going to face more, some of us who live on, But we better make sure that we're prepared for it. And we are prepared to serve our God no matter what. That we make sure that we are living our lives each and every day to glorify Him. But knowing that He knows us well. That we are being judged now. 
Today is our judgment day. We must never forget it. We are being judged here and now. And if we will live our lives in a way that is pleasing to God, if we have the kind of courage, faith, humility, service, and sacrifice that these men that we talked about today and the many others that I don't even have time to go through had to live, God will be pleased with us and our judgment will be good. Hopefully we can use what we have been given to help others, to persuade others to the truth as well, being lights to this world so that God can use us to be a part of the preaching of the gospel as well. That's all a part of it. And if we do these things, if we live this way of life, we know that no matter what happens in our lives, we don't have to worry. We don't have to worry. Paul wasn't worried about death because he knew his future was assured. He knew that his judgment was going to be good. He didn't worry that he wasn't going to make it. Brethren, there's just one final and very important question that I have for you today. It's a question of life or death. It's a life or death question that I, that you have to ask yourselves that we have to do now that you understand, hopefully a little bit better, that you are being judged today, right here and right now. My question is, what are you going to do about it?